As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolas, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. I'm Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. So last week, during our Bible study, we talked about chapter 9, and within chapter 9, we saw events such as the Transfiguration, and primarily what we saw as a motif within that chapter is Christ's continual revelation of his coming passion. If we remember towards the end, he set his eyes on Jerusalem. And instead of doing his normal ministries that we've seen leading up to this point of ministering to all sorts of people and going into various towns, his process, or his motion, rather, is more streamlined. There's a clear direction, and that direction is his coming passion, which between chapters 9 and 8... He's proclaimed twice so far. So along the way, as he set his eyes on Jerusalem, we also see last week a motif of him telling his apostles to be as children and minister to children. And within that proclamation, within that expression to them, what he is trying to suss out and what he's trying to express is that to be like a child is to lower yourself in stature. Because children within the Judeo region at that time were not seen as having rights uh, in the sense that we think of today. We think of children as individuals today because we know what children will grow up to be. Yet children, unfortunately, within uh, Judeo society at that time, were the property of their family, the property of their father, ultimately. And what Christ is telling his apostles in expressing that they need to take the posture of a child uh, and to minister to these little ones is that they need to willingly take that humble stance. They need to willingly lower themselves to the posture of this child who has no say really over what's going on in their life with the full faith being placed in their Father who is in heaven, in God the Father. So that's what's going on with that motif, and we'll express that a little bit further in chapter 10, because this is something that Christ is going to pick up again, not too far from now. So with all of that out of the way, without further ado, we'll move into 
chapter 10 of the Gospel according to St. Mark, beginning with verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as his custom was, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to put her away. But Jesus said to them, For your hard-heartedness, he wrote you this commandment. For from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. From, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So beginning with verse 1 of this chapter, we see the stage set. In Christ being in the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, we see that he's made his progression towards the holy city. In the same way that Joshua, his namesake, because Jesus and Joshua are the same name, began his conquest of the region of Judea by crossing the Jordan. So that's why this first verse is kind of here isolated. It's to set the stage. It's to show where Christ is going and linking him back all the way to the book of Joshua. And we see that as Christ is making his way, the Pharisees come up to him in order to test him. And whenever we see this motif of testing within the gospel according to St. Mark, that is reminding us of the demonic influence that's at play. Because again, the Pharisees aren't being seen as these individuals who are evil, or even as a group that's evil, but rather through their hard-heartedness, which was talked about all the way back at the beginning of the gospel, they're continuing to have their resentments and rage towards Christ egged on. And they're continuing through that resentment and through that rage to blind themselves towards all of the good that Christ is doing, all of the good that will ultimately reveal him to be the Christ, the Messiah. So that's kind of what's happening there. It's just a reminder of us that we're not chastising the individuals here, we're not even chastising the group here. Rather, Christ is pulling our—well, Mark is pulling our attention to these ultimate adversaries of Christ, the ones who stand opposed to not only him but all of his creation and desire to cause us to deviate as well. But we need to remember that we have free will, and through this free will, we choose— to participate in that deviation. So like Peter, a couple of chapters ago, when Christ referred to him as Satan, the Pharisees are too divided against Christ. They are standing opposed to Christ as these adversaries because they're being manipulated in a sense. They're being egged on, not only by their will, but these external forces that he, Christ, is ultimately at war with. 
because that's the whole motif that we see here with the coming of the messianic age christ doesn't come to do war with humans christ comes to liberate humans but what christ has come to liberate us human beings from is our sin is this external influence that pulls us away from him and we'll see that again in the articulation of Christ moving along the way that we'll see throughout this entire chapter and that we saw in the chapter before because the expression of road or way is ultimately telling us who Christ is because in the gospel of Saint Matthew we again hear Christ refer to himself as the way the truth the life and it's along that way that we wind up at the crucifixion, at offering his life for the life of the world and ultimately the resurrection. And it's through that action and mapping onto that action that we too participate in that life in Christ. So there is a system, there is a way that this all plays out, but it's not as clean cut as we might think on the surface. Uh, but it's important for us to remember these key phrases and to remember when these things come up, what the evangelist Mark is trying to tell us, because he uses specific words to draw our attention to various themes that are going on in the gospel. Regardless of all of that, what the Pharisees ask Jesus is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answers them, what did Moses command you? So we need to look at where Jesus is again. He's in the region ruled by Herod. And if we remember what Herod's situation is from the prior chapters with the persecution and murder of John the Baptist, we know that there is a controversy about divorce surrounding Herod. So in a sense, the temptation that the Pharisees are holding in front of Christ is twofold. First, they want him to slip up by going against the law, going against the law given to them by Moses because then they can willingly persecute him and crucify him. Yet Christ doesn't do that, as we're going to see. But because of where Christ is, too, by bringing up divorce, they also want to touch on the hot-button to hot social topic that's going on in that day, which is surrounding Herod's own remarriage of his brother's wife. So there's a lot that's going on there. They, as they say, were setting out to test him. And in knowing that, what Christ does is he, well, what he often does when he's replying to those who are standing opposed to him, those who are testing him, he quotes the scriptures. So he says that Moses, <clears throat> he asks them what Moses commanded them. And they reply that Moses allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce and to put his wife away. From there, Jesus will respond that this was out of man's hard-heartedness. So this was out of the reality that we harden ourselves towards the ultimate reality of what God intended. And what God intended goes all the way back to Genesis, where he joined Adam and Eve together. Eve was made as a helpmate, an equal to Adam, and the Adam, or the human, was split in two. And from that other half came Eve, and the two are joined in God. And what God has joined together, man cannot fully pull apart. But it's because of hard-heartedness that Moses allows for a, 
a bill of divorce to be given. And that hard-heartedness can have a lot of different uh, angles that we can look at it through. First of all, the unfortunate reality that we see within this generation and generations before, not this generation as in the one we're currently living in, but the one of the time of Christ, women did not have equal rights to men. And as we see in the time where Moses was writing the law, women kind of had the, the posture of being property in the sense. So it was only a man within Jewish law that could write a bill of divorce. And if you're looking at this from Moses' perspective through the revelation of God given to him, divorce is a mercy. Because if there's no way for, we'll say, that man to get out of the relationship, murder was something that was very common in terms of everyday life. So what would stop that man if he truly wanted to get out of that relationship, get out of that marriage from murdering his wife? So giving a bill of divorce was a way of circumventing that, a way of getting around that possibility from even happening. But again, we see a continued distortion that plays out through the scriptures because that becomes the norm. So rather than divorce being seen as something that's an unfortunate part of reality and should not be strived for, it becomes a part of everyday life. And that's kind of how the Pharisees are treating it here. They're saying, well, this is what Moses said, so this must be the way that we live. Yet Christ is highlighting that divorce is an exception because ultimately what God has joined together, man cannot pull apart. Yet we do. And that's not chastising people who have divorces. Because divorce, as we see, even in our church's tradition, is a part of reality. Yet, in the remarriage services, if we want to look at that, in our church's tradition, they're often penitential. And that's not because either party is evil. Again, we need to understand that when we look at morality from a Christian perspective, we're not condemning individuals, because we cannot condemn as individuals. We are not God. We are not the final judge. So we don't know what's ultimately written on anyone's heart. However, we can acknowledge the fact that all of us, since we're human beings living in this fallen world, are called towards repentance. And since Christ highlights divorce as being an act that was not intended by God in the first place, if remarriage or if within life in general after the divorce, the intent needs to be to continue that process of repentance. And again, it's not because of a single action of the individual, but it's rather our collective actions because we always have something that we're called to repent about. There's never a shortage of things that we do wrong and pull us away from our Lord. And so we need to, again, take this posture of a child or this posture of a student, lower ourselves and try to see what it is that God is calling us to do and reorient in repentance towards him. Because again, sin isn't the stain or anything on our soul. Rather, it's a deviation from the path that we were called towards. It's a missing of the mark who is Christ. So if we're called to travel down the way with him towards his passion, 
well, we're called to embody everything that he embodies. This is what we're striving towards. So we need to also look at verse 10, 11, and 12 and realize what's going on here. Well, this is clearly an example of Mark speaking to both his Semitic and Roman brethren. Because within Semitic tradition, again, as I mentioned earlier, women were not able to divorce their husbands. However, within Roman tradition, women were able to also divorce. But what we see here is that the sexual immorality or adultery, which is basically just transgressing the bond that was sealed between the two in God, is committed on behalf of the person who casts away their spouse so that way they can marry another. So that's what's going on here. The individual who divorces with the intent of marrying another has committed adultery against the person who they were married to. Why? Because they've sealed that deal. They've signed that contract, and that contract is not strictly legal. Rather, that contract is joining the two human beings as one. So the man and the woman become, ultimately, the human, the Adam, if we're going all the way back to what God said in Genesis. So that's why he's highlighting that there. He's putting men and women on this equal status, and yet he's also highlighting the equal possibility for sin for both sexes. So that's partially what's happening here. So we see that Roman identification, as well as the Semitic identification, and yet what Christ is saying in the statement is that regardless of where you're coming from in terms of your background, whether you be a Jew or whether you be a Roman, what is the end product is that we are called towards this life in God. And what God has joined together, man cannot pull apart. So if we choose to haphazardly cast away this bond that we make, well, what are we doing? Well, we're causing the other person to stumble, and we're first and foremost stumbling ourselves. So that's what he's trying to highlight here. He's trying to warn us that whatever decisions we make, regardless of if it's marital sin or whether it's any form of sin whatsoever, we need to take our actions seriously. We need to seriously take account of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So that way we can be conscious in this world of our actions and know consciously when we need to repent. Because if we're just acting animalistically, let's say, if we're just acting without thought, well, we wind up in a pit in a sense. Is we bury ourselves underneath all of those actions. We don't even remember at the end of that what got us there in the first place. So the act of repentance, the act of becoming a student of Christ, the act of being like one of these little ones, like a child, is freeing ourselves of this weight of sin, if you will, of the weight of all of the reactions to our negative actions. So that way we can get that positivity behind us. We can get that positive momentum that will propel us further in this life in Christ. So ultimately, that is what he's telling us. 
He's telling us that we cannot tear apart what God initially intended. We can try, and that's deviation from him. That causes us to fall. Yet we can always return to him. So moving forward to verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. So this is a very interesting verse, well, pericope, in my opinion, because there's a lot going on here. On its surface, it seems that people are bringing children to Jesus, that he, may t- that he may bless them, he may lay his hands on them. And his disciples didn't seem to get the point from the prior chapter, because they're hindering them. They're, they're standing in the way. They're like, okay, get these kids away from Jesus. And Jesus sees them and is made indignant. He is angered. He's perturbed. And he he's annoyed by this because he made this point in the prior section that the apostles need to be like these little ones, like these children, when he brought the child into the midst of them. And yet they don't seem to get it. So he tells them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So here, very clearly, what he's telling his apostles is that not only are you to take the stature of a child, not only are you to lower yourself to be like one of these little ones, totally dependent on your Father who's in heaven, but without that ultimate humility, without that ultimate lowering of the self and casting aside all our presuppositions of what we're supposed to do to inherit the kingdom— we will not be able to inherit God's kingdom. Because to be able to participate in and inherit the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God, we need to free ourselves of the things that may be pulling us away from it. And this is a very dynamic process because, again, we're all distinct individuals creating the image and striving towards the likeness of God. So if we're created with the stamp of God, if we're created with this image of God, and called to participate in this image and strive towards being like God in his likeness. Well, the only way to do that, since we aren't God, is to fully open ourselves up towards him. So that way we can map onto his Christ. So that way we can live the life that he has shown us and ultimately obtain the kingdom. But that requires us to be like these children, to lower ourselves. It's for this reason that we see at the end, he says, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Because it's not only that Christ tells us, lower yourself. That's not the total picture. Because again, we're called to take this lowly perspective, so that way we can repent. But repentance isn't enough for our own sins. We need to also minister to others. We need to also serve others like Christ served us. 
and it's for this reason that he lays hands upon the children, because he's laying his hands upon all of his apostles. It's through the laying on of hands that we make clergy. It's through the laying on of hands that we give blessings. So through this laying on of hands, he's not only blessing the children, but he's reminding the apostles of their call. He's reminding the apostles that they have had hands laid upon them as well. And in that laying on of hands, in that giving of authority, they too are called to carry out his mission. So that's the reminder for all of us. It's that we've all been anointed, in the sense, by the Messiah, by the Heavenly King. And that anointing brings with it responsibility. But to be able to know what that responsibility entails, we need to be able to lower ourselves to the stature of a child. We need to free ourselves of all of our presuppositions. That way we can honestly and freely live a life in Christ, a life mapped on to the actions of Christ. And ultimately, that's how we participate in the kingdom. So this is what Christ is reminding his apostles. Yet, as we're going to see time and time again throughout the remainder of the gospel, they still don't get it. Because they're not going to get it until Christ raises in glory. Because when he raises in glory on the third day, after everything that he's prefiguring comes about, that's when those seeds will come to fruition. That's when those seeds that he's been planting in his apostles will fully grow. So moving along to verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments? Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. At that saying, his countenance fell, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what we see here is a rich man run up to Christ. And he kneels before him and asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So from his posture, from the way that he approaches Christ, we see that this man's full of enthusiasm. He's strived for good, seemingly. And after hearing about Christ, and I'm assuming the great works that he's done, he sees him as the symbol of the good and desires to draw near to him. So what does Christ do? Well, he goes to the Decalogue. He goes to the Ten Commandments and just regurgitates them basically at the man. And the man says, since my youth, I have kept the law. Since my youth, I have been striving for righteousness. But what we see here towards the end, which is so very important, is that Christ loves him. So he looks upon him with love. And it's out of love that he says to the man, you lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But after he makes this statement, we see a shift. At that saying, the man's countenance falls. His whole disposition shifts. And he goes away sorrowful. And he does this, as we see in the very end of the last verse, verse 22, for he had great possessions. Now let's break this down a little bit, because oftentimes we look at this as saying, well, rich people are bad. It's not good to be rich. And that's not what Christ is telling us at all in this section. What Christ is telling us through his love for this rich man is that if we are fixated on something, if we have anything in our life that stands opposed to Christ and that we have not integrated into this Christ-centered life, well, then it will keep us from the kingdom. So this man, in being acknowledged as the rich man, he doesn't have a name. Rather, he's identified by his possessions because his possessions have owned him. His possessions identify him. So he is not a free man in the sense. He's a man who's a slave to his great possessions. He's done so much objective good in his life, as he says when he says that he has kept the Ten Commandments. Yet, what we see here is that ultimately, there's still something that's holding him back. And Christ, out of love, identifies that thing. And he tells him, listen, where you are, what you need to do is sell all of this, give it to the poor, use it for ministry, so that way you can follow after me. And yet the man is unable to do that. Because the man is a slave to his wealth. Again, I'm not saying that wealth is a bad thing in itself, but rather it's a gift given to us by God. And if it is a gift... We are called to use it to the best of our ability, to multiply it, but also to share it with those who are less fortunate. And that's just within the confines of wealth. We're also called to do that with our talents, with all of the other various gifts that we're given. It's not about money alone. Yet if we're fixated on money, if we hold on to possessions as being the whole of our being, even though we know that there's so much more that we're being offered, well, then that puts us opposed to Christ. And again, it's not because the possessions in themselves are evil, but rather it's how we use them that delivers us into evil, that deviates us from the way that pulls us further from Christ. So if we live a life for our possessions, if we hold them as being superior to everything else, well, all that we've done is isolate ourselves not only from other humanity, because ultimately, if we seek a life that is centered on acquiring more and more things, well, we're not going to have time to be able to interact with others. We're not going to have a desire to interact with others. But ultimately, we're not going to be able to relate to our Lord. We're not going to be able to pick up our cross and follow him. Because if he came as a humble servant, 
he calls us to serve in like manner. So this is what he's getting at here. He's not saying that the man is evil. And he's not saying that his wealth is evil either. But rather, he is articulating that his fixation upon his wealth, his fixation upon his possessions, even though he has this spark of desire to live this life in Christ and follow him, it's snuffed out. It's like we were talking about in the parable of the sower, where the seed that is planted among the thorns grows up. And yet, as time goes by and these thorns are being nurtured along with the seed, the root, the stem, the plant that grows becomes choked out by those thorns. So this man has the seed of a desire for Christ in him. And we see that through his participation in the law and his approaching Christ and kneeling before him. So that light is there, yet the thorns of his wealth that also have grown up alongside that seed of a desire for life in Christ eventually choke out that love, choke out that light. And it's for that reason that the man walks away sorrowful because he knows what he was called to do. And yet because of these thorns, because of these things that are holding him back from that, he's not able to carry out the call that Christ gives of him. But Christ still loves him. Because again, we need to remember that he looks upon him and loves him. And that's why he says these things to him. That's why he calls him to this higher calling. And this is something that we will see emphasized in the next section. So moving forward to verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my name's sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this time. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many that are first will be last, and last first. So the followers of Christ are visibly shaken by what they've seen. This man professed his faith, and yet he's now walked away. And Jesus looks at his disciples knowing this, and he says how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed by this because everyone has some form of wealth. There's no such thing as a person who can get rid of all of their wealth, whether it be their wealth of knowledge, you name it, their wealth of friends. There are various ways that we can quantify wealth. 
And yet Christ here is, says that those who have riches, those who have this wealth, it will be so hard for them to enter the kingdom. And that's because they have so much that through that having, it's easy for us to go on autopilot in a sense. If we have all of our basic needs taken care of for us, like we do in today's society, well, we don't really have many instances where we're called out of that, where we're called to take a deeper look at our life. And rather, it's easy for us to kind of float on from thing to thing. And this is why it's difficult. And what Christ says here is it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So it's easier for this massive animal to go through this tiny gap than for somebody who is obsessed with their wealth or has so much wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet he's not saying this as a chastisement of people who have possessions. He's not saying this as a chastisement against people who have some form of wealth. Rather, what he's saying is that it's difficult when we have wealth to continue to center ourselves. It's difficult when we have these basic needs taken care of for us and then some, for us then to go back to the state where we had to look at ourselves, we'll say, in, a, in some form of a raw light. We need, in a sense, to go back to bedrock. And this is why he refers here to his apostles as children. Because like in the section before, he's reminding them to be like these children, to be lowly. Because you can have great possessions, yet if you lower yourself, those possessions will not own you. You can have great resources around you, and yet if you lower yourself, and figure out what you're to do with all of these friendships, all of these intellectual resources, all of these physical resources, through that lowered posture, you'll then be able to understand what it is you're being called to do with them. So that's why he calls them children. And this is one of the few places where Christ refers to his apostles, his followers, as children. And that's, again, to remind us of what he told us in the prior section. We have a mission. We have a call. And that's to live a life in him. And from this, we see that Peter begins to say, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. When Peter's making the statement, he's doing it in a sense out of pride, but he's also doing it in a sense of identifying the reality that the apostles and all the followers of Christ have made manifest. This man was not able to take up Christ's call, the rich man that is, to give up all and follow him. So Peter contrasts that by saying, look what, we, look at what we've done. We've given up everything to follow you. And to that, Christ replies, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my namesake and the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many that are first will be last and last first so what he's telling peter here is yes you've done good in giving up all to follow me and what you have lost by following me you will gain in this life 
So what he's saying here is something that's identified, we'll say, in what Mark is trying to say to the Christian community that he is a part of. And it's that, yes, your family members may have forsaken you. And yes, you may have lost lands. And yes, you may be persecuted right now. Because again, this is written around 70 AD where there's active uh, persecution happening with the fall of the temple. There's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of turmoil. And the Christians, along with the Jews, don't know what to do. And yet, what Mark is assuring through the voice of Christ, his people here, is that what you have lost in this life will be multiplied in this life in Christ, in the church. Because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ within the church. Yet, what we see here is an absence, first of all, of fathers in the receiving portion. And the reason why fathers are identified in the portion where Christ says what his apostles have forsaken, and they're not identified in the portion where Christ articulates what will be gained, is because the Father is our Father in heaven. God becomes our Father when we live this life in Christ. We are entering the kingdom of God. And if that's what we're called to do, well then, he is that progenitor. He is that one who created us in the beginning, has called us towards him, and will continue to play that role. And all earthly fathers will map on to God. All earthly fathers don't only play that role of trying to submit themselves to God, to be like God, but ultimately, they are servants of God. So they may take this fatherly role, this patriarchal role, if you will, even though that term is not very well received these days. Uh, the idea of a patriarch, the idea of a father within the Semitic tradition is the head of a household. It's the head of this community. And ultimately, that, those fathers, those earthly fathers, are replaced by God the Father. And earthly fathers who are striving toward this life in Christ are called to resemble God the Father, are called to image God the Father, and be like him. But being like him requires humility. Because God, the Father, does not act as a tyrant. God, the Father, is not somebody who is vindictive and vengefully interacting with us because of our sins. Rather, he is a loving Father who is welcoming all of us into the kingdom. And out of love, he sends us his only begotten Son, so that way Christ can willingly sacrifice himself without being forced to by the Father. And it's through that act of love that's shared between Father, Son, and Spirit that we see the same love that as Christians we're called to share with one another. And that's why we're going to receive all of these things in this life, as Christ says. But we need to remember the last thing that Christ says at the end of that list of houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Because 
with all of those things in this life that we may receive as we live this life in Christ, we will also receive persecutions. Yet in the age to come, we are promised eternal life. And that's why many that are first, many who hold themselves in this high esteem will be last in the kingdom. And the last will be first because those who have lowered themselves to the posture of a student, to the posture of a child, will be the ones who can ultimately obtain the kingdom. So moving along to verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. <laughs> so what we're seeing here is the third prediction of Christ's coming passion. They're on the road. They're on the way. They're in motion towards this ultimate goal. And the apostles, they're amazed. And they're afraid of everything that Christ has said up until this point. They're confused. They don't quite understand because they think he is going to be this military messiah. The one who has been promised who's going to liberate them from their earthly oppressors. Yet Christ is more. Christ, yes, is the son of David, as we're going to see. He's within this line of David, and he is the Messiah who was promised. Yet that Messiah was not expressly articulated as being the son of God as well. Because Christ is fully God and fully man. These two natures are perfectly interwoven within him. And so through being God and man, Christ is more than just a worldly king. And that's why he's able to lower himself and come as a servant. Because he freely empties himself to become one of us so that we can inherit life in him. So that way we have somebody, a human being, whose actions we can map onto and imitate. That's how we're living, or at least that's how we're called to live this life in Christ. And yet, the apostles don't understand, as we're going to see moving forward. He gives them this third expression of what is to come, that he's going to be condemned, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be murdered, yet on the third day he's going to rise. And yet the apostles don't understand, because they still think that he's going to be this worldly king coming into Jerusalem. For throughout this whole chapter, he's been going from place to place making his conquest. But the conquest that he's been making hasn't been like Joshua over physical cities. Rather, it's been over the forces that are trying to pull us away from a life in him. Freeing us from their bonds, so that way we can freely choose to live a life in him without their further distortion. Yet this distorted understanding that the apostles have will be emphasized in the next section. 
is as we move on to verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he says to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those of whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are supposed to rule over Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man also came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what we see is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Christ. And they tell him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Something that Christ indulges. And from there they say to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. As they're coming into Jerusalem. Because they think... Well, he's welcomed in Jerusalem. He's going to ascend his throne. He's going to be an earthly ruler, or maybe a spiritual ruler. Regardless, the rule that they are expecting is not the rule with which that Christ is going to truly reign. Because Christ tells them, are you able to drink the cup with which I'm about to, be, I'm about to drink? Or be baptized with the baptism which I'm to be baptized? And to this, they say, we are able. Yet Christ says this to them because the cup is a metaphor in the sense of the passion that he is going to partake in. It is a common cup in the sense. And if they are to sit at his right and his left, as regents, as equals, well, then they must indulge in the same suffering that he is going to indulge in. And ultimately, they will also participate in the baptism, in the death and resurrection that's symbolized in baptism that he is about to participate in. Yet now is not the time. We will see within James's life, James will be one of the earliest apostles martyred. And John will not. John will actually be the only apostle who is not martyred. Yet, John shares in suffering with Christ. We'll see that John shares in the suffering by following him all the way through the Passion, but he also shares in the suffering through his own exile in living through the deaths of all of his companions and friends where James takes up the same cup in being persecuted and ultimately murdered. They will both partake in what Christ is going to partake in. They both will take on suffering and death and ultimately 
be resurrected when we are all resurrected in the second coming. Yet through their misunderstanding, Christ takes this as a teaching moment. We need to remember that the sons of Zebedee, along with Peter, are part of that inner circle. They witnessed transfiguration in the prior chapter. They witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter. And yet they still don't fully understand. And like with Peter, the sons of Zebedee, at a point here in the midpoint of the gospel, stand opposed to Jesus, stand opposed to his call to liberate us from death. And they stand opposed through their misunderstanding. And it's for this reason that Christ reminds them, that they, gently that is, that they need to drink of the cup that he is to drink of, that they need to truly be baptized with the baptism with which he's going to be baptized. Because if they want to be co-equals with Jesus, they need to be servants like Christ. And that's why immediately after the rest of the apostles catch on to what's happening and they become frustrated and indignant towards James and John, Christ tells them, remember what I've been telling you this whole time. You need to serve. You need to be a servant. Because the Son of Man, Christ himself, did not come to be served, but rather to serve to take the posture of a lowly servant. And he does this out of humility, and he calls his followers to do likewise, because the first among them will be slave of all, yet the least among them willingly takes on this posture. He's telling his apostles that they're not going to be like the rulers of the Gentiles. They're not going to be like Herod, who's a slave to not only his passions, but his court that's around him. Rather, their rule is going to be through submitting themselves to the ultimate ruler, to God, who lovingly gave himself for the life of the world. So this is what we're imaging. In God sacrificing his only begotten son and offering him for the life of the world and his son willingly taking up that cross, we again, as I've mentioned time and time again in this session, are mapping onto that action. God becomes man so that way we have an ability to live a life striving to be like God. Because before God becomes man, you can have this intellectual divide in a sense. God can be, as we see him in modern culture, up in the sky somewhere, detached from humanity. And we're down here. We're suffering. We're experiencing all of the hardship that comes along with life. We see death. We see destruction. We see war. We see sickness. All of these things are real parts of our daily life. Yet if God is ethereal and up in the sky somewhere, well, What's he doing? Where is he? What was the plan? These are the questions that come to mind. Yet as Christians, we believe that God became man. God came into all of this crap. He experienced what we experienced. He suffered. Ultimately, he died as he is preparing his apostles to realize. Yet through his death, the creator of all cannot truly be killed. And it's for that reason that
the bonds of sin, the bonds of death are broken by Christ when he rises. He tramples down death by death itself. And through that act, those in the tomb, us stuck in sin, are given the possibility of eternal life. But that's only because God has condescended. That's only because God has become man that we are able to map on to God. And it's for that reason that he calls his apostles to do likewise. Because it's not only emblematic of their call, but it also reflects what we are called to do. Because we also are called to live this life in Christ. We are also called to serve others more than we try to serve ourselves. And it's out of that service, it's out of that self-emptying, that we too can be members of the body of Christ. So this is what he's calling his apostles to do. This is why he's gently guiding the sons of Zebedee back on track. Because they're called to be servants, to serve, not to be served. So moving on to the final section of this chapter, we go to verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude, and a great multitude, Bartemius, a blind beggar, the son of Tamarius, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus st stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, rise, he is calling you. And throwing off his mantle, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Master, let me receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him on the way. So what we see here is another echo of the progression that links Christ to his namesake, Joshua. Because they come to Jericho, and we see an awkward shift here. Is immediately after they come to Jericho, they're said to be leaving Jericho. But the reason why we're in Jericho is because Jericho is that first city which is conquered by Joshua. So if we remember at the beginning of the chapter, Christ crosses the Jordan. He crosses the region of the Jordan in the same way that Joshua began his conquest by crossing the Jordan with the people of Israel. And after doing that, the first major conflict that they have is in Jericho. Yet Jericho is also the lowest point, geographically speaking, compared to the city on the hill, the heavenly, the, the city of Jerusalem, with, with, uh, in which Christ is about to make his entrance in the next chapter. So we need to remember this lowly place, but we need to also remember it's in this lowly place that God revealed conquest. And Christ, as the messianic king, the conqueror, is conquering sin and distortion. So when we meet this beggar, Bartemius, son of Tamarius, and Bartemius, the name itself 
means son of Tamarius. Um, so it's, it's basically doubling here. We see him sitting by the roadside. He's identified by name, which indicates that the people of the time, the community of Mark, would have known this individual. We see that a lot in scriptural accounts where we have individuals who are not named, yet the ones who are named may be directing us towards the fact that the individuals who are part of the various communities that this gospel was formed in were familiar with the person who's being mentioned. But the name of Bartemius and his identification with his father can also indicate that this man was held in high status at one point. And we know that, or can intuit that, through his association with his father. So if his father and his family was in some high place at one point, to the point where his name is identified here in the text, well, where do we find Bartemius now? We find him blind and begging in the lowest geographical place. And it's from this posture, from this great darkness, that Bartemius speaks the words that are not spoken by any other human being in the scripture. Well, at least in this gospel up until this point. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And identifying Jesus as the Christ, the son of David, the messianic king, Bartemius is expressing part of the truth. He is the human Messiah, in a sense. He is the one who has been expected. Yet, Bartemius doesn't fully grasp the fact that he's the son of God. This is a reality that is not going to be fully grasped by anyone, including the apostles, as we've mentioned time and time again in this session, until Christ raises from the dead. Yet, Bartemius has this intuition. He sees the spark of light in his literal darkness, because again, he's blind, he can't see. Yes, he may be hearing the crowd talking around him, yet something within him cries out. And that internal crying manifests itself in this verbal proclamation, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says to those around him, call him. And they call the blind man, and he springs up. He casts off the cloak that he's wrapped in as he's sitting on the side of the road and throws himself in front of Christ. And Christ asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And he says to him, Master, let me receive my sight. But as we see towards the end, when Christ gives him his sight, the sight with which he is given is more potent than just physical sight. Because the sight that he is given is of who Jesus is, or at least he intuits who Jesus may be. Because we're told that immediately after he receives his sight, he follows Jesus on the way. And we need to remember that word, way, or road, is reminding us of his coming passion. Christ is about to enter Jerusalem 
where he's going to be welcomed by the people as this messianic king. And yet, a week later, he's going to be persecuted, martyred, by the same people who are inviting him in. But Bartemius, in this acknowledgement that he is the son of David, follows him on this path. He doesn't quite understand who it is he's following, yet he takes up this call to proceed down the way. And so we need to remember that because we're called to do likewise. The apostles and all those following Christ have been leading up to this point of the entry into Jerusalem. And when they enter from this low place, the conquest that the Messianic king has been making so far against these forces of evil, these forces that pull us away from him, will be in full swing when he enters the kingdom that is supposed to be of the children of God. And that's not to throw shade at them and say that, well, the Jewish people were evil then. But rather, it's to show that God has truly come. And if he is the source of life, and if those who are called to strive towards that source of life are standing opposed to it, well, what is their reward? Because again, when we're talking about peoples, or groups rather, we're not talking about the group in themselves, and we're not talking about the individual either. Because individuals commit numerous actions. If you think about all of the actions that you have done in your life, you can't even begin to quantify them, regardless of whether they were good or evil in nature. And so if we try to quantify the individuals who make choices that deviate from God, and we try to encapsulate their entire life through their individual actions, well, we're missing the point. We're casting judgment without having the full picture. Because there are too many variables at play for us human beings to be able to take a full account of what's happening. And yet, we know that we can be influenced by these powers by these forces that call us away from God. And that's why they're the entities, in a sense, that Christ is focusing on. He may be identifying these groups of people, but as we remember way back in the first chapter, the stage has already been set for these, these groups of people to be motivated and hardened by these external forces. Yet it's not external in the sense that they're being tortured or forced to have these actions. Rather, it's external in the sense that it's away from God, and they are choosing to let those external forces in. And in that relation, we see deviation. And through that deviation and that hardening of heart and that giving in to resentment, we're soon going to see Christ's passion. So our reminder is even though we can be blind, even though we can be in a lowly place in life, 
and feel like we've deviated so far from God and given ourselves over into so many feelings of hatred and resentment towards others, we can always right the ship. We can always reorient and live a life in Christ. And that scene in Bartemius, who's sitting in this lowly place, who's blind, he's living in utter darkness. Yet when this spark comes by, the spark of divinity, he acknowledges it, kindles it, fosters it, and ultimately is given true sight. But after he's given this true sight, he is called then to follow Christ along the way to become a servant like him, to offer his life as Christ offers his life for the life of the world. And ultimately, we are called to do likewise. It may express itself in different ways. As we mentioned earlier with the rich young man or the rich man in this gospel, he has a specific call. And out of love, Christ gives him that specific call. And we, too, have our calls to live a life in Christ because we, human beings who have our various complexities and talents and whatnot, all have a different way of expressing that life in Christ, that call to live a life in him and to serve others. So let us take the posture of a child. Let's lower ourselves so that way we can have the humility to repent and reorient towards Christ so that ultimately we can figure out what it is that we need to do in our life to serve him. Because regardless of what we're doing, if we are a human being created in his divine image and called to strive towards his likeness, we need to figure out how it is that we live up to that call. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. And until next time, I'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner Give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.